Hi, my name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute that brings scholarly expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. Today, we consider the United Nations on the occasion of the 75th anniversary of its founding in 1945, and more specifically, we discuss the role of the namesake of our institute, Dr. Ralph Bunch, who was Undersecretary General of the UN and winner of the 1950 Nobel Peace Prize and his role in the creation and shaping of the United Nations in its early days. And we're fortunate to have with us today to discuss that uh, James T.L. Dandridge II, a retired senior foreign service officer and U.S. Army pioneer special operations officer who knew Ralph Bunch when he that is, Dandridge was a student at um, Howard University in the 1940s. Mr. Dandridge is now vice chairman of the board of, of directors of the Diplomacy Center Foundation for the establishment of the National Museum of American Diplomacy. He's also vice president of the board of directors, uh, excuse me, board of governors and trustees of diplomats and consular officers retired, better known as DACOR. And from 2005 to 2015, he served as chair of the board of directors for the Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training. Mr. Dandridge is also the 2008 recipient of the Director General's Cup for the Foreign Service for his promotion of the Foreign Service, both as a U.S. diplomat and in retirement. And he retired from the U.S. Foreign Service with the rank of Minister Counselor in July 1997. Jim Dandridge, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. You're quite welcome. Look forward to the exchange. Likewise. Okay, so let's start right in. Uh, as I've already mentioned, you knew uh, Ralph Bunch when you were a student at, at Howard, and he was still a professor of political science there. Uh, and before he made the contributions that won him a Nobel Prize, what were your impressions of him then? Julian, first, let me thank you for inviting me to participate in National Horizons here at CUNY on the occasion of the 75th anniversary of the establishment of the United You know, I feel it's a very special privilege to come back here, albeit virtual, to a place where I met Dr. Benjamin Rivlin, Ralph mm -hmm. Munch's OSS assistant. I also met Sir Brian Urquhart, Munch's colleague, and Professor Under Secretary General of the UN, and also Dr. Larry uh, Finkelstein, Bunch's assistant of the Department of State, and he also went with Bunch to the UN trusteeship directorate at the UN. We all met later in Washington, D.C., at the uh, Library of Congress for the uh, pre launching of Bill Greaves' PBS special Bunch uh, documentary, and you know, at that time, we had a, a panel discussion the next morning, and we collectively decided that we were going to do everything possible to keep Bunch's legacy alive. And as it stands, Sir Brian and I, uh, you know, we continue to carry the torch on that promise, which I salute to the vision of Ben, who uh, established the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies. You know, actually, I'm reminded of Ben's... Um, sharing with me how his journey led to CUNY. 
when Ralph Bunch was departing the OSS, Ben asked him, Ralph, what do I do now? And, and the Bunch say to him, we'll get a PhD and get involved in international relations. And as they say, the rest is history. And now, now to your question, what were my impressions of Ralph Bunch when I was a student? You know, here I was a young student educated in Selma, Alabama, who thought that I knew it all. And on top of all this, I was going to the hilltop. That's how we affectionately referred to Howard University. Those days were a place where we had the lords of black academia, professors Dorsey, John Hope Franklin, and the occasional lecture by Dr. Bunch, who at that time, actually, he was a special assistant to uh, Dr. Mordecai Johnson, president of Howard. And of course, all this is why Bunch was uh, changing the world as a, as, as a government operative. And of course, I was in the process of uh, burning the midnight oil, trying to stay off of academic probation so I could be around when the grass turned green. That's what, um, what we uh, referred to for, the, for those of us who managed to keep the grades above level of uh, probation. And I, along with the majority of my uh, classmates, survivors felt that we were among the best because, after all, we were led by the changes, changer of world events, Dr. Ralph Bunch. And I felt a real pride that a man whom I looked like could potentially make those kinds of changes. And there were other classmates who made changes later, one of which was uh, Chloe Wolfert, better known later as Tony Morrison. But, you know, John, I can say that Ralph Bunch really instilled a real sense of academic pride in all of us students at the at the hilltop. Great. Uh, we as professors, I think, often don't realize what kind of impression we make on people, uh, on students, and and just you know have no idea until maybe years later that we had this significance. So it's uh, always interesting to hear what kind of experience people had with their teachers. And obviously, this was a profoundly influential one for you. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit more about Bunch's uh, academic path. Uh, you know, you've you recently written a, an article for the Foreign Service Journal about Bunch, and uh, you note that his academic work was particularly focused on the matters of colonialism and decolonization. And of course, these became probably the most, among the most significant problems uh, in the post-World War II world. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit about how he approached the problem and what influence do you think W.E.B. Du Bois had on his thinking? Okay. Well, that's a big question. Um, yeah, as you may recall, uh, John, I made a point in emphasizing my version of what I think influenced Bunch's academic work toward the uh, matter of colonization and decolonization and that uh, Foreign Service um, uh, journal article that you referred to. You know, personally, I think, you know, as I emphasize in that article, Bunch was a person of his time and was he was definitely influenced by world events as he was growing up. And, and I kind of presumptively compared my own experiences growing up in Selma in the 30s and the 40s as a young black student. And I was aware of what was going on in Europe. I remember newsreel coverages of Kristallnacht. I remember Hitler's move in Poland in 1939. I even remember the Russian choir that visited my church, Brown Chapel AMA Church. And even during the Second World War, as, as kids, we you know, we kind of fantasized about our next enemy would be the Russians. 
Imagine our presumptive uh, ally against Germany would, would be our next enemy. Now, I, I can see Bunch growing up in Los Angeles, and I can see him being aware of the Great War uh, when he was about 10 years old, uh, as, as, and that was as World War I was popular known then. And I can see the, I can see the subsequent uh, impact on, on the mostly world of peoples of color being tossed around as wards of the new conquerors to be protected by their newer, richer, so-called civilized protectors until they could walk on their own feet. Now, all of this was inherent in the later League of Nations, Article 22, uh, which uh, was uh, was transported from um, uh, Woodrow Wilson's Article 5 of his 14 points. Both of those dealt with the distribution of the colonists which were finally dealt with in Bunch's post-World War II design of the mandates, which were uh, a part of the UN structure and the eventual decolonization of most of the world's colonized world. Now, Bunch's introduction of paths towards self-rule was actually, that was a major structural base for this to happen. Now, the plight of the American Negro, and I use the term that was the term de jure during Bunch's time, uh, that the, the, the plight of the American Negro was not that different in Bunch's mind. You know, now he, he was able to envision the need to expand his own academic and, uh, and, and selected life journey, uh, journey accordingly. Now, now, we all know the paths of his academic prowess and his achievements at every level. But through it all, and his excellence at every academic level, he never lost sight of the perils of the American Negro while following uh, and, and, and focusing on the plights of people of color around the world. Now, and a bunch constantly reminded himself and his academic colleagues of the need to be a part of the system and not apart from the solution, as he too experienced in addressing of the American. Now, now, in this regard, it's pretty easy to understand that famous letter that we all uh, refer to that he wrote to the then first black Harvard PhD and, and at that time um, Howard professor and activist W.B. Du Bois. Uh, that was in um, 1927, March 11th to be exact. Now, in that letter, that letter was written during the month of his graduation from Southern California uh, University, which is now known as UCLA. And after he had been informed that he had a scholarship to Harvard, in the middle of the letter, he wrote, the reason for this letter, I have been sufficiently old to think rationally and to appreciate that there was a race problem in which I was necessarily involved. I have set as my goal, my ambition to service my group. In other words, he was offering and asking at the same time his service to work with the giant of the movement and offering his services um, uh, while still uh, achieving the to, to, the, to the maximum uh, ends of his academic uh, potential. Now, now, but, you know, at the same time, Bunch had an intellectually 
love-hate relationship with W.E. Du Bois. So while Bunch found this role with Du Bois um, to be, how should I put it, he admired Du Bois' academic activism. Bunch was much more, even in his academic achievements, he was much more international-oriented in solving the plight of all of the world's people of color. So he felt that the, the American Negro was much too caste-oriented, which was limiting its own humanistic abilities. You know, I came across a letter from the, the Amsterdam News um, in New York, which was dated uh, December the 11th, 1939. And this was a letter that was um, sent to Bunch by a feature writer, uh, Marvel Cook, name, um, for, uh, in anticipation of the New Year's, for New Year's of 1940 uh, publication. And he asked Bunch to write a short statement on, quote, my New Year's wish for the Negro in 1940. So Bunch decided to format um, his article as his 10 wishes for the American Negro in the new year. And the first one read, quote, that the Negro will become more internationally minded and less narrowly racial chauvinistic in his thinking. Now, in the end, Bunch was a true academician, but he did he, he absolutely did not hold back on the assertions that he had made, which we uh, experienced during his uh, 1927 UCLA valedictorian address. We know of that address as the fourth dimension of personality, where he said, we are to develop our personalities to their fullest. We must add a fourth dimension to this ordinary self and that we may expand up and out from our narrow, immediate world. Now, in the end, with all due respect that much had for the academician W.B. Du Bois, you can sum up his reverse influence of Du Bois uh, in a 1936 speech that uh, he made to the Young People's Forum in Philadelphia, where he referred to Du Bois as and this is pretty. This is pretty tough and pretty direct. As a tired, frustrated ex-radical, whose racial chauvinism pitted black workers against white workers. So I think, in response to your question, John, you see here in his uh, evolving academic, uh, uh, his evolving uh, academic uh, prowess. Uh, he was becoming much, much more uh, interested in the larger uh, global perspective of the of, of his strengths toward developing for the the peoples of color, a billion people, if you please, um, a one third the size of the of the global map. So I think that that answers uh, that part as far as what were the influences um, on on Bunch during this period. 
Well, that's fascinating. I mean, I'm interested, as you probably figured out, because my background is really in sociology. And uh, as you may know, there's a major sort of rethinking of the place of Du Bois in the uh, in the history of the discipline these days. And uh, you know, I've always had this sense that Du Bois and um, uh, Bunch were you know, not exactly on the same page about various things. They're both, you know, deeply intellectual figures, but I had the sense that uh, Bunch was something more of an institutionalist. I mean, you talked before about uh, how he thought that, you know, you can't be outside the system because you're then outside the solution. So in that sense, that's the way it seemed to me in many ways, he really differed from uh, Du Bois, who was more of an intellectual critic. I mean, he was an institution builder, of course, with the NAACP and other institutions, but uh, he wasn't as inclined, I guess, to go into existing institutions as, as Bunch was. But in any case, speaking of institutions, uh, I guess I wanted to ask you, you mentioned in the uh, Foreign Service Journal uh, article also the fact that uh, Bunch was involved in drafting some of the uh, you know, original, the founding documents of the United Nations. Maybe you could say a little bit more about how you think he saw this institution, which of course hadn't existed yet. There was, had been a League of Nations you know, that eventually fell apart. Uh, and the United Nations was an outgrowth of, you know, the alliance that defeated the Axis powers during World War II, uh, who have, uh, who initially called themselves the United Nations. Um, but how did he see this uh, this new institution? What did he think it could do for the world? Well, I think it's a great segue from both of um, the uh, uh, our discussions there uh, on bunches uh, evolving. Um, uh, developments which were much more international. And, and as uh, I suggested, the fact that he was influenced by being a man of his time. He was influenced by uh, that war, th that four-year war that took five years to, to quit. And, uh, and as a result, uh, his role was as an ever-evolving creator or inventor of the United Nations as it took on its multifaceted post-World War II challenges and problems. And, and before this gigantic role, being the principal architect of the UN's peacekeeping role, for which he, is, he received the, the uh, Nobel Peace Prize, he addressed the unfinished business of exactly what you just referred to, the unfinished business of the League of Nations, which came um, after the, the, the many... Uh, treaty negotiations that, that followed on to the First World War. Uh, and of course, this whole issue of decolonization of this substantial sector of the world. For instance, you know, as I stated, John, in, in, in the uh, Foreign Service uh, a Journal article, by the time that Bunch took his job at State Department in 1944, the official policy objective of the U.S. was that trusteeships should be designed to deal with territories that had been under League of Nations mandate and those that were taken from Axis powers because of the war, because of the First World War. The American plan that Bunch found himself involved with as he was transiting uh, from academia into becoming a government operative 
and we're in the period of bunches going into going from the OSS and into the Department of State. Now, the, the American plan did not allow for a small, albeit not very effective, proviso that ended up in the UN Chapter 12, Article 76, which was for the extension of the trusteeship system to other territories placed under it voluntarily by the powers administering them. And of course, the story does not end here. In that, you know, there was no decision formally made to authorize the U.S. delegation to introduce the draft that Bunch had so diligently drafted en route by train to San Francisco to the um, 1945 uh, conference to, for the establishment of the United Nations Charter. The British had provided an opening, and the Australians took the initiative to save the day. UN Chapter 11 is titled Declaration Regarding Non-Self-Governing Territories. Now, this chapter is based actually on, on is, is based on a weak draft on trusteeship that was made by the British delegation, and it was and it was for for a reason, obviously. But uh, and and that reason coincided uh, with the the stronger American draft. Uh, that um, that bunch had worked on. And this draft was using that very language from the League of Nations. That was from Article 22 of the League of Nations. But, you know, the Australians had been working on colonial issues also during the war. That's the Second World War. And actually, their views were much closer to those of Bunch's draft. So, Bunch took advantage of the opportunity knowing that the U.S. delegation had not made a decision about introducing uh, such a, um, a, a, a draft. So he just passed it informally to his Australian opposite and said, here, take it. It's already done. Go go for it. So the Australians took it and they drew on it. And they introduced the, um, an amendment to the British proposal and thus Article 73 of the Charter. Now, John, as you know, my article focused primarily on this period during Bunch's assignment to the Department of State, but, but there were other significant UN creations uh, that were made as a, as a, as a post-World War II challenges uh, were providing. Now, one of the most significant post-World War II challenges was peacekeeping, for which there, there's absolutely no provision that was made in the founding UN document, nowhere. Nowhere in the original UN Charter is peacekeeping mentioned. Yet, that's become the mainstay of the United Nations. And it's led to one of the most significant ongoing contributions to humanity since the inception of the United Nations. Ralph Bunch played this signature role in conflict resolution through mediation and the use of military forces for the support of peacekeeping efforts globally. From Israel and its four Arab neighbors in 1948, you know, there's been more than 70 UN peacekeeping uh, operations. Now, all of this, in spite of the fact that nowhere in the UN Charter is the term peacekeeping to be found. Yet, Ralph Bunch is credited for the development and the establishment of the UN's most high profile role, international peacekeeping. 
So I guess in the end, you can say that although peacekeeping as a UN mission is found nowhere in the United Nations Charter, it probably lies somewhere between chapters six and seven. The Security Council's responsibility to investigate and mediate uh, disputes, chapter six, an authorization to use the military, among um, many other means, to resolve disputes, uh, which you could find in chapter seven. That's great. And that's uh, uh, a perfect segue uh, for your part uh, to my next question, which really has to do with his uh, Nobel Prize. Uh, He won the Nobel Prize uh, in 1950 for his involvement in the early days of the Israeli-Arab dispute. Uh, And I guess I wonder, you know, what you could tell us about uh, about how he saw the problem, how he approached it, and uh, you know what he might think about it today. Well, there's no doubt, John, that Bunch's mediation of the first armistice, and I'm going to stop right there. That was Bunch's preferred reference. He liked mediation over peace agreement. Anyway, it stands out probably as the most diplomatic achievement in the annals of conflict resolution, in my opinion. Now, this was a situation that I, I should say, it has its roots in thousands of years, smoldering conflict. You know, of the many miracles performed by Bunch, this one took him completely out of his comfort zone. Here, after a lifetime of study, preparation, and dedication, he finally stumbled into the change from within that appeared impossible, finishing the work of post-World uh, War One and League of Nations puzzle. Now, he, 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 he found himself finally ensconced in a position of academic and practical exhilaration over institutionalizing a process within which finally the newly established World Organization, the UN, would lead to the liberalization of a billion people of color, half the world's population, one-third the size of the world map, with the final solution of the mandate system, benefits of self-governing populations. And then to top all of this off, he was occupying the UN chair as the director of the UN trusteeships to monitor the successful transition for the process. Now, out of seemingly nowhere, he found himself in the midst of a new maze in a newly created post-World War II problem, the movement of Jewish refugees from Europe back to Palestine to uh, join the already permanent Jewish-Arab-Palestinian inhabitants that had been peaceful residents for thousands of years. Now, I'm not going to go into religious implications of this large return of religious refugees, which caused the creation of the UN Special Commission on uh, Palestine. Here, of course, lie a part of Bunch's old geographic responsibility, which was a territory under the British mandate, of which Bunch's UN um, uh, office had responsibility as well as Bunch's own academic preparation. So Bunch was pulled back into play this time as the assistant mediator to Swedish Count Bernadotte to negotiate a truce between Egyptian and Israeli military forces and the occupation of the Negev. Now, without going into the extensive tactical details, as you know, Count Bernadotte was assassinated, and actually a bunch escaped uh, assassination by staying behind in Rhodes to take care of um, 
last-minute business with plans to join uh, Bernadotte the next day. Um, fortunate bunch escaped assassinated. Escaped uh, the assassination. Bunch withdrew from the area, leaving behind Israeli and Egyptian forces facing off in the Negev. The Egyptians had not informed their pub their, their, their publics of the situation. In fact, the Egyptians were leaving with the impression uh, with their publics that they had the advantage in the Negev, and the Israelis were now in favorite territory with no plans to leave uh, or surrender it. The Middle East Arab neighbors of Transjordan, Libya, and Syria were standing ready to assist their Egyptian brotherhood in the Negev. Uh, this was the dilemma faced by the new acting, again, Bunch's preferred title. He did not want to be called the mediator. So the details of the truce negotiations were mediated by Bunch and Rhodes in what I would consider classic diplomacy. That is, personal and institutional in action. And I think we can go back here again to your earlier reference on the sociological aspects of Bunch's earlier uh, academic preparations uh, over and above the other uh, studies that, uh, that he had done in addition to political science. And so we see Bunch's ever-evolving creation and, and taking advantage of the totality of his academic preparations outside of the areas in which we more commonly attribute to him as being a political scientist, but yet he would, and I think that you as a sociologist would agree with me, that he was also a sociologist par excellence. Uh, but um, uh, this, those standards enabled him to negotiate the most difficult of diplomatic trials and challenges in the reestablishment of a world order. And so you, you asked me as a second part of that question. How would I look at this today? And I would say my answer would it that it would be just as messy, probably without the clean resolution that much accomplished. Yes, it remains a complicated part of the world. There seem to have been some improvements in the recent past, um, but we'll have to see whether uh, the region uh you know finds the peace that it has long sought so unsuccessfully so my last question is one that has a sort of personal side i mean outside of our offices at the ralph bunch institute at the cuny graduate center there hangs a large probably five feet long uh blow up i guess of a photograph of ralph bunch marching with Martin Luther King, Coretta Scott King, the recently deceased John Lewis, Ralph Abernathy, and other icons of the civil rights movement. And you've already kind of addressed this uh, in passing, but I'd, I'd be interested if you could say a little bit more about how he saw the relationship between his international diplomatic work and his involvement and participation in the civil rights movement. Yes, you're right. I have addressed this in passing because this was Bunch. 
This was the man that I described earlier when I was talking about his academic influences and his own academic development, who considered the larger problem and not just the smaller parts of the problem. And in this case, we're again, as I mentioned before, a billion people, one third the, the size of the global map. And here, Bunch saw racial injustice problems in America as a part of the continuum of global racial injustices. He saw the basis uh, was the same wherever it was encountered, wherever, whether it was in the Congo or whether it was in Mississippi. And in his, in, in, in his early academic writings, he condemned Article 22 of the League of Nations as a hypocritical approach, subjugating peoples of color, not to protect and train them, but for pure economic greed that resolved itself into the larger category of racism. And actually, Bunch saw no difference in the plight of the American Negro and in this larger global perspective. And he gained activist weight through the transferal of his status from academician to government agent and reciprocal academician on engagement in racial injustice problems back home. You know, the historian John Hope Franklin categorized Bunch as a new category of leadership, local, national, and international. And I would only add that he was the complete package. Yes, he was the complete package. Um, and I, I mean, notwithstanding whatever tensions there may have been in their views of the world, I mean, I think, you know, there is a way in which he was carrying out a vision that W.B. Du Bois also shared at certain times. I mean, he did make this famous comment about uh, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line, you know, in the Americas, in Africa, in the islands of the sea. I've forgotten exactly how he puts it, but, uh, you know, he's basically saying this is a worldwide problem. Um, so we're very pleased, I have to say, at the Ralph Bunch Institute to be able to, in some small way, carry forward the, the legacy of this uh, important thinker and uh, international diplomat and to, you know, work at an institute that bears his name. So we are most grateful to you, Jim Dandridge, for taking the time to talk to us today about Ralph Bunch and about the origins of the United Nations. That's it for today's episode of International Horizons. Uh, thank you again. Uh, for taking the time. I also want to thank Risto Voinov for his technical assistance. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us again for the next episode of International Horizons. Thanks very much.